Father in heaven, there is none like you. There is none like your son, Jesus. And there is none like your Holy Spirit. We ask this morning that you would take my words and speak through them. Take our minds, Lord, and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Amen. Well, are you guys excited for the start of this sermon series on the book of Acts? Yes, me too. I'm pumped. Let's do this thing. Um, You know, there are 66 books in in the Bible, but among them, the book of Acts is utterly unique. All right, because if you think about it, there's 13 uh, letters that were penned by the Apostle Paul. And there are five books of Moses. That's, where, that's how the Bible starts. And there are four Gospels. So we get four different lenses into the person of Jesus. But we only get one lens into the story of the early church. And that's what we get here in the book of Acts. Without Acts, we'd have no account of Jesus' ascension into heaven. We'd have no story of Pentecost, no record of the first Gentile converts. We wouldn't have a record of Paul's conversion. We'd have no record of the miraculous expansion of the church. And most importantly, we'd have far less knowledge of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. In fact, um, this book has often, has often been called the Acts of the Apostles, but some scholars have suggested that maybe a more accurate title for it might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Right? Because the, the, the sort of lead character on the human scene continues to shift from Peter to Paul to Peter to Paul, but the Holy Spirit remains like this ever-present protagonist throughout. So um, I want to... So, so, so we, have, we have the Acts of the Apostles, we have the Acts of the Holy Spirit, um, but I want to throw in a third potential name for the book of Acts, something that maybe isn't immediately obvious, even though we find it right in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. So would you t- turn there with me to Acts 1, 1. It's on page 909 of your pew Bible. And what Luke wants us to see right away is that this book is actually nothing less than the continued story of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is actually the continued story of Jesus. He begins with a reference to his first book, the Gospel of Luke. It's written by the same author. And he writes, um, in the first book, O Theophilus, or in Greek, O lover of God, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. Did you catch that? So if the Gospel of Luke was about all that Jesus began to do and teach, what's the implication? What's the book of Acts going to be about? Yeah, right. All that Jesus will continue to do, right? As one Bible scholar put it, this word began teaches us that the work of the church now to be described is also the work of the Lord. So in Acts, we get the continued story of Jesus. Now this point in the text is actually almost odd enough to miss because for all but the first few verses, of course, Jesus is bodily absent from the story, right? He's not there like he is walking around in the Gospels. He's no longer there. He's ascended to the right hand of power on high. 
Now, I said earlier that in the book of Acts, um, that, excuse me, that the book of Acts gives us the only account of Jesus' ascension, but that's actually only partially true. Um, the book of Acts gives us the only story we have of what that was sort of like for those who saw it, um, but actually the ascension is spoken of all over the place in Scripture. I wonder if you knew that. All over the place in both the Old Testament and the New. Actually, I want to I wanna ask sort of a Bible quiz question this morning. This is like a super nerdy thing to do, all right? <laughs> Bible quiz question. I know there's a lot of people here who love the Word of God. So I want to ask, what's the most commonly referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament? And Sarah Hall is not allowed to answer this question. <laughs> um, I'll even accept the correct chapter number. So can I, can, I, can I get three people who would be bold enough to guess? What's the most commonly referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament? I'll even accept the, the right chapter number. All right? Can we do this? Bible quiz. No gold stars, but yeah. Isaiah 53, that's a great guess, isn't that? Right? He was, he was crushed for our sins. He was pierced for our iniquities, right? Uh, but that's not it. It's a very, very commonly referenced, but that's not it. Deuteronomy 6. To remind me what Deuteronomy 6 is. Oh, okay, the Shema. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you, you know, the, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Uh, yeah, that's a great guess, but that's not it either. You got, you got a guess? No, did somebody else have a guess? I thought I saw a hand. Yeah. It's actually not from Genesis. <laughs> Genesis something. That was, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that guess spans something. Okay, I'll give one more. Mike in. Um, the Daniel passage, son of man. Daniel passage, son of man. Daniel chapter 7. Almost. You're on the right track. <laughs> See, it should have been a hint. We're talking about the ascension. But this is going to surprise you guys, all right? It's actually Psalm 110, verse 1, which we just sang a few minutes ago. And it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, the father is saying to the son, uh, take your kingly seat in heaven until all the earth is brought into alignment with your reign. Take your kingly seat in heaven until all that is on the earth is brought into alignment with your reign. This verse is directly quoted five times in the New Testament, and it's referenced like another 25 times. Isn't that surprising? That's not really like the common, that's like not like the Bible memory verse thing usually in Sunday school. But for some reason, this image of the Messiah reigning at the right hand of the Father just loomed large in the theological imagination of the early church. Peter quotes it in his post-Pentecost sermon in the very next chapter in the book of Acts. And actually, um, when the first Christian is martyred in Acts, when Stephen is martyred, he sees this vision in heaven of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. This, this image just continues to be referenced. So what's going on here? Why was Jesus' ascension so important to the witness of the early church? Well, because it meant that Jesus was already king, right? That everything already belongs to him. That it's only a matter of time before all the earth knew. So the Roman Empire had this saying. They said, Jesus is Lord. And the early Christians, they were respectful. They prayed for their emperors. Even their emperors who persecuted them, they prayed for. But they were kind of punk, punk rock in this one sense. They, uh, they uh, insisted, no, 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 Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
And they got in trouble for that. They got persecuted for that. But they were like, no, you know, we're not going to pay homage to Caesar as a god. We're not going to placate the local authorities and just burn a little pinch of incense to Caesar. And they were like, I mean, you know, you could go ahead and feed us to the lions, but we know who's the real Lord. And it's Jesus. Now, if we really believed that, how do you think it might affect our boldness in sharing Jesus with others? How do you think it would affect our willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Or, or maybe even just to like, you know, be uncomfortable, you know, or misunderstood for his namesake. A few weeks back, I was walking through Frenchtown and I visited uh, a couple of my friends that are always uh, out here sitting on the porch drinking beer. And... Um, and we were just kind of joking around, talking for a little while. And, uh, and then before I left, I said, hey, I want to I invite you guys. I really would love for you to come to Alpha. We do this dinner, and there's a discussion afterwards, and I think that you guys would like it. And so I was talking with him a little bit, and my friend says to me, um, you know, Rev, because he calls me Rev, he says, you know, Rev, one of these days I'm going to surprise you, and, I, and I'm going to show up. And uh, in response, I actually felt moved by the Lord to say, well, I hope you do come, but don't do it to surprise me. Do it because Jesus is worthy of being worshipped. And he kind of had this look on his face like, yeah, that's probably a better reason. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of like, I didn't expect that. <laughs> but see, I wanted my friend to understand that it's not like I'm trying to invite him to my thing, Right? Instead, he and I, all the world, is being invited to Jesus' thing. In our, in our evangelistic efforts, I think we just like, need to get out of our own way, guys. Stop, stop making how people react to you or don't react to you so important. I, I want to kind of give you this image of how faith in Jesus uh, and faith in his ascension helps us to do that. So... Um, I think that, uh, you know, commonly as I'm going about my day and, and I'm just feeling kind of like, you know, faithless or, or I'm just kind of like not really giving God, uh, uh, you know, much of my mind, um, I, can, I, can, I can start to feel kind of um, like I'm alone in the world. You know what I'm saying? So I can start to just kind of feel like it's just me, just me in this world, just me and other people, and that's it, right? But then, like, sometimes I'll get this, like, mustard seed of faith, and I'm like, you know what? It's like, you know what? Jesus is, is Lord over me, you know? And, I, and, I'll, and I'll at least recognize, you know, Jesus, you're my Lord. And, and I'll have this sort of private faith, you know, where I'm like, at least I know that Jesus is Lord. And then sometimes uh, my vision will be expanded a little bit more, and I'll just realize, you know, that person sitting across the room, or, you know, my next-door neighbor, Jesus is their Lord, too. He's their king. So it's like, you know, that, that sort of umbrella sort of expands over me and over my neighbor. Or, um, you know, if, if, if I can really be in touch with his heart, I just recognize, you know what, Jesus? All these people, all these institutions, all these things, they all belong to you. You're the Lord. He said in our gospel reading, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And when I can operate in that, it just changes the way that I think about how I live. In other words, the church's mission to the nations, it's actually an extension of the Messiah's ascension to the right hand of the Father. 
As John Stott puts it, if God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. And that's exactly what God does desire. Turn with me, if you would, to your reading in Daniel 7, page 745. This is another Old Testament passage about the ascension. And it says in verse 13, um, Daniel's having this vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. So notice, notice the son of man is riding the clouds toward God, not, not away from him. Right? Daniel says, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that is to God Almighty, and he was presented before him. So it's this image of the Son of Man riding the clouds of heaven and being presented to the Ancient of Days. And what happens, according to Daniel's vision, is that um, God makes the Son of Man the rightful king over the earth. Now, if you fast forwarded to our Acts chapter 1 passage, you'll see in verse 9 that it says, when Jesus was lifted up, quote, a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, where do you think that cloud is bringing the Son of Man? To God. To the Ancient of Days. This is exactly what Daniel was talking about. Daniel 7.14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. And the Hebrew word for serve here can also be translated worship as it is in the NIV, that all peoples, nations, and languages should worship him. His dominion, it's talking about Jesus, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So fast forward several hundred years from Daniel, and we find that this vision he had was fulfilled in this dramatic and unexpected way in Jesus. So the Son of Man came down from heaven in humility, right? To receive the cross, to receive a cross for us out of love for the world. And then he ascended back up to heaven in glory to receive a crown. And now from his heavenly seat, the son's position as rightful king over all peoples, nations, and languages is being realized in earth. Again, the church's mission is connected to Jesus' kingship. That's why he commissions his apostles in Acts 1.8 saying, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Many scholars have seen in Acts 1.8 that it's this sort, of, sort of this road map for the book of Acts. So it lets you know where we're about to go. We're going to spend some time in Jerusalem and Judea and, and then we're going to move on. The mission's going to go on to Samaria and then it's just going to keep traveling on to the ends of the earth until at the end it's all the way at the, at the head of the empire at the, at, in Rome. But it's not just this road map. It's not only that. The story of the advancing mission is really the story of the most quoted verse in the New Testament, of Psalm 110, verse 1, of the entire world coming under the feet of the Messiah. So it's the continued story of Jesus. But just because Jesus has returned to heaven, this doesn't mean that his role on earth is sort of like relegated to that of like a passive onlooker. Jesus remains actually tangibly involved on the earth, and he's still tangibly involved today in two ways, through his spirit and through his church. So we might say that Jesus is involved directly in the earth, 
by his spirit and he's involved instrumentally on the earth by his church. So turn back with me to Acts chapter 1. It says, in the 40 days following his resurrection, in Acts 1 uh, verse 2, that Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So right there we see both. We see the Spirit and then the first leaders of the church. And then again a few verses later it says, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait on the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we have the church and the Spirit. And then in verse 8, the verse we just talked about a few minutes ago, Um, He says, you know, before they can be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, first they need power. They need heavenly power. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. So we see Jesus sort of setting forth this like collaborative pattern between the church and the spirit, the spirit and the church. But it's not only like collaboration. Jesus actually personally identifies with both the church and the spirit. So, um, for example, in the story of Saul's conversion in Acts 9, Jesus asked this famous persecutor of the church, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? And when Saul asked him, like, who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting? Who are you? Jesus, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Jesus' union with the church goes beyond the level of sympathy to the level of personal identification. What philosophers would call an ontological identification. An identification between his being and our being through the church. Brothers and sisters, we're the body of Christ. And Jesus is continuing to live his story on earth through us. Let that sink in this morning. In Jesus' identification with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is even more clear. Actually, in Acts 16.7, the Holy Spirit is referred to, to directly as just the Spirit of Jesus himself. That's what the Holy Spirit is called, the Spirit of Jesus. And remember, when the Great Commission was read, Jesus says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. How is it that Jesus can promise to be with the church always to the very end of the age when he's ascended into heaven? Because he's reigning through us, through the Holy Spirit. Commenting on Acts, John Calvin says that the Spirit is the perpetual, uh, by, by the Spirit, Christ is the perpetual governor of his church. So the book of Acts is the continued story of Jesus through the Spirit and through the church. And these two actually go together. They're not set in opposition to one another. But I think if we're honest, um, we're, we're usually um, nervous about one or both of those things. Right? Usually, like, either we're, we're nervous with this idea of Jesus identifying with his church because we, like, are afraid to trust people. Right? Or we're nervous about Jesus uh, we're, we're nervous about the Holy Spirit, you know, opening ourselves to this like Holy Spirit thing because we're just like nervous about trusting God. We don't, we don't want to let him in. We don't want to open the door, right? So there's this, uh, there's this man named Charles Hummel who died just a few years back. And he used to be the director of faculty ministry for InterVarsity. And he was also the president of Barrington College in Rhode Island. And... Uh, Hummel, he's probably best known for this little booklet he came out with called The Tyranny of the Urgent. Have you ever heard of that? 
the tyranny of the urgent. Um, but he was also a scholar and leader in the charismatic movement in the 90s. So this movement that was all about pursuing the Holy Spirit. Right? And what I want to share with you is this analogy he gives of the fire in the fireplace. So Hummel says that the work of the Holy Spirit is like a fire. And that's actually a very biblical metaphor, isn't it? Uh, and he said the church is like a fireplace. It's like this big, beautiful cathedral fireplace. Have you ever seen one of those with really beautiful stone working and it's got a little arch? He said that the problem, though, is that the church is often like a fireplace with no fire. And he said, as, as, as like beautiful as this like big brick fireplace may be, if it has no fire, it's going to seem cold and uninviting. Right? Because the purpose of the fireplace is to have a fire in it. <laughs> On the other hand, he said the problem with the charismatic movement is that it often gets fixated on the fire to the exclusion of the fireplace. So it seeks God's spirit apart from God's church often and around the leaders. And when we do that, says Hummel, things start to get dangerous, things start to get weird. And if you just you know, start lighting fires in random places, somebody's gonna get burned, people are gonna get burned. The house is gonna come down. The thing we need to understand, says Hummel, is that they're both gifts from God, the spirit and the church. And these two are meant to be together, the fire and the fireplace. And that's what we see in these opening verses of the book of Acts. We see Jesus making plans to give these two incredible gifts. And to Jesus, they're supposed to go together. And that's the pattern in the book of Acts. So let me summarize before we draw to a close. We started... Uh, by introducing the book of Acts and notice that we could also call it the, you know, the Acts of the Holy Spirit or we could maybe even call it like the continued Acts of Jesus. Even though Jesus is bodily absent, we notice there's this strong connection between his ascension and our mission on the earth, our mission to the nations. And it's through the Spirit and the church that Jesus' story continues on the earth. So brothers and sisters, you are part of Jesus' ongoing story. If you love Jesus, if you name his name, you're part of his story. You know, we're still living in the same age of the Spirit that we see in the book of Acts. We're still living in this Jeremiah 31 New Covenant time. And Jesus still identifies with his people such that wherever we trod, wherever you walk around Tallahassee, that's kingdom ground, guys. That's kingdom ground. You're a bearer of the Lord Jesus, of his kingdom. If you don't know that, if that sounds uncomfortable to you, then you don't know who you are, Christian. Paul calls us the body of Christ. Jesus says that you are the light of the world. People of incarnation, we're not on mission. We are a mission. We're endowed with the very mission of the Lord Jesus. So when we come into contact with non-believers, they come in contact with the body of the resurrected Lord Jesus. The holiness of your life is meant to reveal the holiness of God. When your children see how you love them, they should see something about the Father's heart. 
When we speak up for justice in the public forum, it's in the name of Jesus that we speak. Yesterday, uh, Jane and I had a funny text exchange, and I was writing this sermon, so that kind of was shaping my response to her. <laughs> she asked if uh, the InterVarsity band could use uh, the, the church building for music rehearsals this semester, and I said, sure, I'll bring you a key. And, uh, and now, let me, let me tell you exactly what she texted me back. She said, great, I'll protect it with my life. Keys to the kingdom, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> And I replied back, do you remember what I said, Jane? Um, you said that the Lord like, already gave you those. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I said about the keys to the kingdom, uh, I, I said, ha ha. <laughs> you got it, sister. Jesus already gave you those. So we were just joking around. But the point is true. Jesus has given Jane the keys to the kingdom. And he's given them to you, Christian. Do you realize how much authority he's invested in us? I close with this. Most of us wish we had a chance to meet Jesus in person. And I think if you had a chance to meet the ascended Lord Jesus, here's what I think he'd say to you. Right, this is a little bold, but let me give a crack at it. <laughs> I think he'd say this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go. Make disciples of all nations. He would say, but don't go without my spirit. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm sending power from heaven for you. And don't go alone. Go with my church. Go with your brothers and sisters. Go with the fire and the fireplace. And here's the thing. Jesus has already said that to you. Right? This comes down to us through the ages, through the apostles, and it's to you. And his kingship, the announcement that Jesus is Lord, is intended to go to the ends of the earth. I don't care if you're a student or a mom or an immigrant. If you love Jesus, then you need to decide today. Am I going to live this sort of private faith that says, well, Jesus is my Lord? Right? That's, that's the way that the secular world wants us to, to follow Jesus. Right? Or am I going to agree with the early church that Jesus is the rightful Lord over all the earth and we are called to continue his story to the ends of the earth? Amen.